This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. A follow-the-money strategy must be utilized to understand why President Bush has refused to close our border with Mexico. The underlying agenda of the Bush administration seems to be to create a NAFTA-plus environment in which workers, trade, and capital will be allowed to flow unimpeded within the trilateral North American community consisting of the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Those are the words of Dr. Jerome Corsi, conservative commentator and conspiracy theorist. They're from an article published on WorldNet Daily in June 2006. Well, this article was the first of many he'd write about North American foreign policy. Each time, he kept coming to the same point. The U.S. was choosing trade and money over strong borders. But over the course of a year, his articles started to take a more radical stance. A group of American and international elites were planning for comprehensive North American political integration. Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. would cease to be independent nations with distinct politics, finances, and national identities. Instead, they'd form a single EU-style supernation. However radical Corsi's ideas, they didn't remain a fringe affair. His 2007 book, The Late Great USA, which laid out this theory piece by piece, was a bestseller. It rose to number 28 on the New York Times bestseller list and number one on Amazon's nonfiction list. His ideas would go on to influence U.S. policy discussions in Congress and on the 2008 presidential campaign trail. As he wrote in his book, quote, while it would be presumptuous to claim that a North American Union is inevitable, it is equally presumptuous to insist that it is impossible. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. 
let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode covering the North American Union, or NAU, an EU-style supernation comprised of what is now Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. Controlled by a globalist elite, it would leave the little people voiceless and powerless. Could North American governments be working behind citizens' backs to consolidate power? Last week, we discussed the official story behind the United States' cooperation with Canada and Mexico on trade and security issues in the early and mid-2000s. This week, we'll explore the conspiracy theory that says the cooperation wasn't as innocent as it seemed. As the official story would have it, President Bush's Security and Prosperity Partnership, or SPP, was an innocent commitment between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada to improve North American trade and security. The SPP was established at a conference in Waco, Texas, in March 2005, between President George W. Bush, Mexico's President Vicente Fox, and Canada's Prime Minister Paul Martin. It created trilateral working groups under different cabinet-level members of the U.S., Canadian, and Mexican governments. Around the same time, in the mid-2000s, a road project called the Trans-Texas Corridor, or TTC, was in the works. Officially, the toll road, whose construction and operation would be managed by a private corporation based in Spain, was a simple solution to the state's infrastructural and funding problems. Similarly, the official story holds that the Council on Foreign Relations, or CFR, was simply a think tank. Its research on North American cooperation was an investigation into policies for a better future. Not a blueprint for a future supernation. Conspiracy theorists are skeptical, though. They link the SPP, the TTC, and the politicians, researchers, and business people invested in greater North American cooperation and claim that they are part of a silent and dangerous plot to turn North America into a second European Union, all without the consent of the voting public. They see the globalist attitudes of business-oriented politicians as a danger to U.S. sovereignty and safety, on the pursuit of endless financial gain, while leaving the little people as poor as ever. If there's a secret globalist cabal behind NAU, there's only one puppet master behind the NAU theory itself, Jerome Corsi. Although other conservative commentators like Phyllis Schlafly vocally supported the idea, it was Corsi who conceived of the NAU and made it a household term in conservative circles around the U.S. Let's look at who exactly Corsi is. Jerome Corsi is a conservative media personality, political commentator, and conspiracy theorist. Recently, he's made headlines for his entanglement in the 2016 election WikiLeaks scandal. However, he came to that position by a circuitous route. 
Born in East Cleveland, Ohio in 1946, Corsi was raised under the influence of his father's fervent democratic politics. At Harvard, he pursued a Ph.D. in political science under the guidance of Michael Walzer, a noted left-leaning political theorist. In the decade after his graduation from Harvard in 1972, he drifted between academic institutions, never finding a respectable long-term position. It was then that he started to consult for government agencies, including a stint as an undercover agent for the FBI. His assignment was to infiltrate the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, a leftist organization of anti-war activists who had fought in Vietnam. This work, spying on the lefties for Uncle Sam, seems to have pushed Corsi's politics to the right. It gave him an ideological reason to abandon his lackluster career in academia, which he saw as, quote, dominated by leftists. For the next 20 years, Corsi decided to skip out on politics entirely and instead worked in bank marketing. But in 2004, everything changed. Corsi went back to politics with a bang, publishing his book, Unfit for Command. A collaboration with John O'Neill, Unfit for Command, was a takedown of then-presidential candidate John Kerry. O'Neill had served with Kerry in Vietnam, and the central claim of the book was that Kerry's stories of his service in the war were falsified or exaggerated. Douglas Brinkley, a presidential historian at Rice University and biographer of Kerry, calls the book, quote, a fake history masquerading as some kind of truth and a political hit job. But criticism of the book's accuracy didn't stop it from reaching number one on the New York Times bestseller list and possibly altering the course of the election. Kerry never figured out how to effectively respond to the false accusations in the book, and political commentators, including Brinkley, have argued that it's one of the key factors in his electoral defeat. Corsi tasted some real power and success, financial and otherwise, with the publication of that book. After 2004, his career changed dramatically. He started contributing regularly to the conservative website WorldNet Daily. In 2005 and 2006, he published four books, three of them via the WorldNet Daily publishing imprint, WND Books. While none of these follow-up books reached the same heights as Unfit for Command, they helped establish Corsi as a vocal political commentator with a strong conspiratorial bent. He stood for the little man against big business establishment types, including Republicans as well as liberals. He was suspicious of anyone with power, academics and scientists, politicians and businessmen. This brings us to July 2007, when Corsi published The Late Great USA. The title echoes The Late Great Planet Earth, a 1970 book that used biblical analysis to predict that the rapture would occur in the 1980s. The best-selling conservative tract provided the perfect literary lineage for Corsi. His book, too, would stack shelves across America and push a new generation of thought into mainstream discourse. The actual theory the book proposes is a bit hard to swallow, especially looking back from the very different political context of 2019. But it's important to remember that in 2007, Corsi was a buzzworthy, albeit highly controversial, figure. 
To a huge swath of the American public, his argument sounded plausible. It all begins with the Security and Prosperity Partnership, or SPP. The SPP made it clear that Bush and his administration were interested in expanding NAFTA through trilateral cooperation with Canada and Mexico. After a closed-door meeting in Waco, Texas in 2005, President Bush, President Fox, and Prime Minister Martin announced a mutual commitment to developing trilateral security and trade solutions. After the meeting, they all went for a meal and a tour at Bush's nearby ranch. It was an awfully friendly affair. And Corsi didn't like it. It was this little root that sprouted his NAU theory. Part of what got to Corsi about the SPP was that, as a protectionist-oriented conservative, he was suspicious of any increase in free trade and other globalist initiatives. As he saw it, eliminating tariffs at the southern border meant more manufacturing jobs moving down to Mexico. That would hurt U.S. manufacturing communities and ultimately, he feared, leave the U.S. overly reliant on international goods. That is, of course, a common set of concerns among a distinct political alignment. But many economists argue that free trade grows the economy as a whole, and everyone benefits in the end, even though it may hurt a small part of the population in the short term by eliminating manufacturing jobs. Economists have also pointed out that 1994's NAFTA agreement has had little impact on the decline of manufacturing in the U.S., which has been steady since the 1950s. But it's a question economists continue to debate. Corsi wasn't saying anything radical when he brought up those concerns. It was his next concern that was a little more radical. That issue was about the ways in which the SPP resembled the EU. Or, to put it more bluntly, the SPP was a step toward doing away with American sovereignty and submitting to our global elite overlords. When we get back, we'll take a look at that resemblance to the EU and why exactly Corsi was so worried about it. Now, back to the story. The 2005 Security and Prosperity Partnership was an agreement between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico to increase cooperation on trade and security issues. It wasn't a signed agreement, nor did it signal any official change in international policy, but it did establish trilateral working groups. And to conspiracy theorists, those unofficial groups weren't as innocent as they seemed. The trilateral working groups were organized under different cabinet-level members of the U.S., Canadian, and Mexican governments, and they were mainly tasked with research. Each group would investigate solutions to issues involving trade and security and report those solutions back to their respective cabinet members. To Jerome Corsi, these groups looked suspiciously similar to the EU. Now, many people around the world consider the EU to be a wonderful alliance. But for a protectionist, nationalistic conservative like Corsi, that level of international cooperation is an inherently bad thing. By creating a supranational governing structure that individual nations have to answer to, the EU infringes on each country's right to focus on their own national concerns first. It leaves local issues second to international ones and ultimately prioritizes big money, which spans national borders over average citizens. Or, so Corsi argued. 
There are practical as well as ideological concerns wrapped up in this argument. The EU has a lot of very real power over its member states on issues that sometimes affect countries very differently. The best border security policy for Italy, for example, might not be the best border security policy for Germany. Or the best border security policy for Mexico might not be the best border security policy for the U.S. But the power the EU exercises has plenty of contingencies. It can't legislate in a given area unless a signed treaty has specifically given it jurisdiction over that area. And those treaties are signed and negotiated by elected and nationally appointed officials of member states. Their job is to specifically represent their country's interests to the EU while working on solutions to international issues. But once a treaty is signed, the EU does have the power to legislate and enforce its legislation. It even has its own court system to arbitrate international issues, and the decisions of that system can go on to influence the decisions of court systems within individual nations. It's undeniable that the EU is a powerful, influential structure and that it moves some decision-making from a national level to a cooperative international one. Some would, in fact, many do, argue that that's for the greater good, spreading wealth and opportunity across the continent, regardless of borders. But some, Corsi included, would say that the huge scale of international decision-making leaves local concerns by the wayside. National heritage, traditions, and wealth no longer belong to each country's everyday citizens, but to the international power players who control the system. Whether or not you consider the EU a good thing, and whether or not you'd support the development of a similar structure in North America, we have to ask whether Corsi's suspicions about the SPP have any merit in the first place. A huge problem with the SPP, according to the NAU theory, was that the circumstances of its creation closely resemble the circumstances surrounding the early EU. That takes us back to the 1950s. The very first iteration of the EU was created to foster peace after World War II, specifically to govern the European steel and coal markets. If steel and coal, crucial materials of war, were regulated by an international body, national disagreements would have a harder time turning into violent conflict. Well, that specific focus on steel and coal meant the earliest iteration of the EU had a very limited scope but it set a crucial precedent for the development of a comprehensive international governing body. That body would eventually legislate on issues ranging from education and labor to border security. Corsi saw a parallel between the post-World War II concerns about security in Europe and the post-9-11 concerns about security in North America that preceded the SPP agreement. If the EU began in the name of peace and security, the NAU might start the same way. There are, however, a few key differences between the SPP and the EU. The EU has always been based on signed international treaties and elected bodies. Those signed documents are what give and limit its power. The SPP didn't include any signed documents. Without signed treaties or agreements, it couldn't ever assume the power of creating laws. Now, this is exactly what bothered Corsi about the SPP. Without a signed agreement, 
there was nothing outlining exactly what the SPP was or what its powers might be. But there was nothing giving it powers either. As a collection of research groups, it didn't need or expect legislative powers. The working groups it established were only intended to suggest policy, which government officials could assess and implement as they saw fit. Or so the official story goes. But there were too many parallels between the EU and the SPP for Corsi not to feel alarmed. Even the language the agreements use is similar. The cabinet-level government officials that the SPP working groups reported to were all called ministers in the context of the agreement, regardless of their titles within their respective governments. Well, that title is rarely used within the U.S. government, but it is commonly used in the EU. It's no surprise that Corsi felt suspicious. Bear in mind, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico all use wildly different titles to refer to their government officials. The three countries don't even use the same language. A general catch-all term was needed for simplicity, and minister was an obvious choice. Well, that's exactly the sort of logic they're counting on. First, the SPP's ministers are just a semantic technicality. Then the working groups become official governing bodies, the minister title becomes permanent, the scope of the agreement expands, and before you know it, the USA is the NAU. As Corsi points out in his book, Jean Monnet, an important figure in the development of the European Union, advocated for an incrementalist approach to slowly break down resistance to the EU by focusing on one small issue at a time, Coal and steel before free movement of labor, for example. If Monet successfully advocated for that secretive, silent, incrementalist approach in the EU, it doesn't seem so far-fetched that North American globalists might apply a similar logic. And perhaps they'd start with the innocent SPP working groups. While the SPP working groups might not have been given the power to enact new policies themselves, they reported directly to important officials within the American, Mexican, and Canadian governments. Their suggestions did have the power to influence eventual policy outcomes. Without their having even been noticed, much less elected by the American people. It's a fact that the SPP working groups were focused on bringing internationally oriented solutions to the table. The leap Corsi makes, though, is in calling these groups a shadow government. Perhaps they didn't have any official powers, but they were poised to take over at any moment. There are several pieces of information that Corsi strung together to explain why he made that leap. One is the involvement of Mexican President Vicente Fox. Fox, at the beginning of his presidency in 2000, announced what he called his 2020 vision. It was a proposal that would expand NAFTA into a European Union-inspired common market, meaning a free flow of both goods and labor across borders. So President Fox wanted to create a pseudo-North American Union, whether or not he called it that. And as we discussed last episode, some U.S.-based political commentators, even from the right, voiced their support for his vision early in the 2000s. The support of political commentators is, of course, different from support within the Bush administration. 
But Corsi saw Bush's friendly cooperation with Fox as deeply suggestive of sympathy with his goals. There are some other key factors that helped Corsi come to the conclusion that when Bush said SPP, he meant NAU. A crucial one, as we discussed last week, was the TTC, or Trans-Texas Corridor. Now, the TTC officially was aimed at improving traffic across Texas in the wake of increased trade due to NAFTA. Although the project was first proposed in 2001, Corsi only started looking at it in 2005, after the SPP agreement. His issues with the TTC centered around its potential to expand and deepen the connection between the U.S. and Mexico. Mega roads would facilitate even more international trade and, potentially, international labor flows. It's not as if there aren't already plenty of roads connecting the U.S. with Mexico and Canada. But the TTC proposed a radically new kind of highway. It would have spanned the width of more than three football fields, included power and train lines, and roared with sound at levels that locals argued would be monstrous. As Corsi saw it, no reasonable amount of international trade needed that kind of road, however congested Texas's highways might be. If the TTC was an isolated project spanning Texas alone, perhaps Corsi would have dismissed it as a local concern. But Corsi predicted that these were only the first in a whole network of transcontinental roads that would unify North America. This prediction centered on a nonprofit called the North American Super Corridor Coalition Incorporated, or NASCO. NASCO is devoted to improving continent-wide infrastructure in the interest of international trade. Although NASCO doesn't actually build roads or other infrastructure, it had received funding from the Department of Transportation to develop plans for tracking shipping containers across North America. If there was money for that research coming directly from the Department of Transportation, Corsi speculated, there might be more in wait for other projects NASCO was involved in like building transcontinental roads. Corsi saw a plan for more roads across North America as an indication of movement towards a new North American order in which not only goods, but also people would flow freely across international mega highways. But Corsi's other issues with the TTC shed light on exactly what alarmed him about this potential free flow, big money, and as he calls it, red China. He was deeply concerned about the planned foreign investment in the TTC project and about the potential increase in trade it might facilitate, not just between the U.S. and Mexico, but between the U.S. and China. As we've discussed, the TTC proposal was based on the investment of a Spanish company, Sintra, which would build and then lease the TTC from the state of Texas. It's fairly common for investment companies, often foreign, to build a road with the expectation of leasing it and running it as a tollway. But Corsi was worried about the power this kind of massive roadway, crucial to trade between the U.S. and Mexico, would give to foreign entities that didn't answer to the American people in any way. It presented an issue of sovereignty. Giving power to foreign entities within U.S. borders was an automatic no-go for him but it also hits on his distrust of big money. International companies were run by exactly the class of globalists who, in Corsi's view, had the most to gain by creating an NAU. Allowing these people to control transportation within the U.S. was unconscionable. 
And Corsi's concerns didn't end with tollway fares lining the pockets of Spanish globalist elites. He was even more concerned about concurrent plans led by Chinese companies to deepen ports in Mexico. If Chinese goods could more easily land in Mexican ports, they could avoid the higher rates charged by the longshoremen unions in California and other U.S. ports. That would mean they could cut transportation costs on their already cheaply produced goods and then sell them in the U.S. at even lower prices. Corsi brought up the issue of Chinese slave labor, as he calls it, or the extremely low wages paid to many laborers in China. Those low wages are what keep production costs down and ultimately lead to lower sale prices. Corsi wasn't too worried about the exploitation of Chinese laborers, but he was extremely concerned about the fact that cheap Chinese goods disincentivized manufacturing in the U.S., where labor laws inevitably led to higher production costs. It's unclear how much the TTC would have impacted manufacturing rates in the U.S., even in combination with deeper Mexican ports and cheaper Chinese products. By 2007, U.S. manufacturing was already much lower than it had been in the 1950s, and economists tend to believe that tide is irreversible. Regardless, Corsi's concerns were rooted in a fear that prioritizing international trade and travel gave too much power to foreign countries, foreign money, and internationalist interests. He saw a new world order coming. U.S. sovereignty would be ceded to international big money, and the little man, with his local concerns, his local pride, and his nationalistic outlook, would have no place. Now, as we discussed last episode, the TTC was, in the end, aborted. Opposition was strong across Texas, from everyone from ranchers to environmentalists to local politicians, and the plans completely fell through in 2011. But in 2007, it still looked like a possibility, especially considering the trade policies being pushed by the federal government. The Bush administration did favor free trade across North America over protectionism. For example, in 2007, his Department of Transportation launched a pilot program that allowed 100 Mexican trucking companies unlimited access to U.S. roads for international cargo hauling. And transportation is just one part of the international scheme Corsi envisioned. Another factor that alarmed him about the SPP was the collaboration it instituted on security issues. Collaboration on security between countries that share borders, especially in the wake of 9-11, might seem like a no-brainer. But Corsi saw something more sinister in that promise of collaboration. There are a few more pieces of the puzzle that explain why the SPP was the beginning of an international shadow government. When we come back, we'll examine who he thought was promoting that shadow government, who would run it, and what it would look like. Now back to the story. In 2007, Jerome Corsi saw the ideas of Robert Pastor and the Council on Foreign Relations as blueprints for the future North American Union, and these ideas gained a significant following of conspiracy theorists. Dr. Pastor is a professor at American University in D.C. and an expert on Latin American foreign policy. 
He has been called before Congress to give expert testimony and has participated in research at think tanks, including the Council on Foreign Relations, or CFR. It was his 2001 book, Toward a North American Community, that put him on Corsi's radar. The book argued for a greater economic integration between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, or the expansion and deepening of NAFTA. It also proposed a common currency between the nations to facilitate economic integration, which Pastor called the Amero. As we discussed last episode, this was an academic text, albeit one with ideas remarkably positioned to alarm someone with nationalist-oriented politics like Jerome Corsi's. Pastor's book is actually the only place the infamous Amero is brought up in all of Corsi's evidence for the NAU. But Corsi latches onto that suggestion and sees it as a key example of the U.S.'s impending loss of economic sovereignty. With a joint North American currency, the Federal Reserve, which regulates the financial health of the U.S., would be beholden to continent-wide financial concerns. The value of U.S. currency would be tied to the economic success of Mexico and Canada. The U.S. would no longer be financially independent, either in terms of the decision-making that goes into policies like interest rates or in terms of stabilizing the buying power of the dollar, or rather, the Amero. That would obviously be a serious political development if it happened. But even Pastor said the Amero wouldn't be a beneficial solution for the U.S. or Canada unless the Mexican peso rose in value significantly which is why he suggested that the U.S. invest in Mexican economic growth before considering the Amero, an investment idea that Corsi wasn't too thrilled about either. Investing in Mexico would sap the wealth of the U.S. to support a country that didn't earn our help, according to Corsi. He saw the U.S.'s economic might as something hard-earned and well-deserved, something that outsiders had no right to partake in, especially when they had nothing to give in return. There's a lot to unpack there, and we don't have time to sort through all the domestic and international issues that led to Mexico's economic instability or the U.S.'s economic success. But the rationale behind Pastor's idea of investing in Mexico is that it actually would give the U.S. something in return. Increased wealth in Mexico would flow back across the border, creating increased wealth in America, too. And ultimately, linking currencies would facilitate that multi-directional flow of wealth and opportunity. Differing economic theories aside, though, it would seem far-fetched to take the Amero, an idea mentioned in a single academic text, and latch onto it as the future of North America if it wasn't for Pastor's work with the CFR. That work positions him squarely at the center of a group of academic, business, and political elites pushing for a more integrated North America. There's a chain of connections Corsi puzzles out between Pastor and the U.S. government that give him his justification for calling the Amero a real possibility. First, a report Pastor compiled with the CFR. The May 2005 report, which we discussed last episode, is called Building a North American Community. It was compiled by the CFR Task Force on the Future of North America, 
The timing of the report, only two months after the March 2005 establishment of the SPP, linked it with potential outcomes of the new partnership, at least in Corsi's mind. The contents of the report included recommendations like the establishment of a security perimeter around the outer edges of Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, within which movement would be free and legal, the development of border passes with biometric identifiers, and the adoption of a common North American tariff, eliminating the few remaining barriers to trade after NAFTA. Most relevant to Corsi were those common North American border passes. They indicated a free flow not just of goods, but of labor. What alarmed Corsi most was that this proposal was poised to fall into the hands of a whole network of powerful global elites at the North American Forum. The North American Forum, or NAF, was a conference held in Banff, Canada in September 2006. It brought together a diverse cast of business leaders, academics, policy advisors, and government officials to discuss relations between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. Dr. Pastor attended, along with about one-third of the members of the CFR Task Force for the Future of North America. Now, as policymakers and business people with expertise on North American relations, it's no surprise that they would attend a conference on the subject. But their presence at the conference suggested that there was a secret network of elites gunning for the policies the CFR proposed in its Building a North American Community report, especially since the secretive conference was closed to the press. The presence of Thomas Shannon, the Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, raised Corsi's alarm bells even further. If Shannon was a part of the pro-NAU contingent, then that would mean at least some members of Bush's administration shared the CFR's agenda. Or, at the very least, it meant that the forum gave business leaders an opening to meet with officials and sway policy decisions in their favor. We know that Corsi saw big business as an international affair, and rightly so. Borders don't stop the flow of cash. And money talks. We again see that concern about money's place in policymaking in the warning Corsi gives about the North American Competitiveness Council, or NACC, which was established under the auspices of the SPP in 2006. The NACC was composed of business leaders who would advise U.S. cabinet members in areas ranging from transportation to manufacturing to services. It gave business people a direct line into the ear of the U.S. government. The Rockefeller Republicans, as Corsi called them, seemed to be sacrificing the American everyman for efficiencies in international trade, which benefited the wealthy more than anyone. Perhaps this was the real shadow government all along, not the SPP working groups, not the Council on Foreign Relations, but the international business leaders who already have a firm yet unofficial place in policymaking. Maybe we've been looking in the wrong direction this entire time. If big business wants a North American union, they don't have to wait for official treaties or international organizations. They already have all the influence they need to make it happen. Let's pull all these pieces together. Corsi believed that the SPP agreement was the basis for a shadow government that would eventually resemble the European Union. 
Following the recommendations of academics and business people with financially driven agendas, this shadow government would incrementally introduce transcontinental superhighways, a unified currency, and open borders. International money would direct policy choices for the entire continent. All to the detriment of the American people, and all without their consent. The theory is compelling in that it introduces real concern about real issues. There's a tense interplay of what's good for big business, what's good for the American people, and what's good for the international community. These are questions economists and politicians have argued about for generations and continue to argue about. What does a mutually beneficial international relationship look like? And how far should a government go to promote free trade at the potential expense of its people? But another big concern driving Corsi's theory and lurking behind all the factors he links together was fear of open borders, a deep anxiety about America losing its Americanness by opening its borders to outsiders, notably from Mexico, is an undercurrent throughout the whole argument. Corsi wasn't alone in that anxiety. It made its way into the immigration debates that started to bounce across party lines at around the time Corsi wrote The Late Great USA. These aren't fringe conspiratorial concerns. They're part of mainstream American political discussions. But the conclusion Corsi's argument takes them to, a North American union, is somewhat hard to believe. His theory strings together a lot of concurrent events through links that are almost exclusively speculative. Thomas Shannon's presence at the North American Forum is far from an endorsement of the CFA's proposals, and even if he did support that plan, there's still no evidence to suggest his views represented those of the Bush administration at large. In retrospect, it's easy to point out that the TTC was shot down and never built, and that immigration policy has only gotten tighter since Corsi wrote his book back in 2007. But few people were predicting that turn in politics in 2007. And even if Corsi's theory seems unfounded, the fear it was based in remains real. Fear of a globalizing world and what that means for America. His arguments say a lot about the actual state of the U.S. and the possibilities for its future, even if we can't get on board with his conclusions. For that, we give the North American Union theory a 3 out of 10. The issues the NAU brings to the table were compelling enough to bring the theory along onto the 2008 presidential campaign trail and even into Congress. Ron Paul made the idea of the NAU central to his campaign, sidestepping the more conspiratorial parts of the theory to embrace it as an example of competing visions about America's future. He said, quote, It's not so much a secretive conspiracy, it's a contest between ideologies. Whether we believe in our institutions here, our national sovereignty, our constitution, or are we going to further move in the direction of international government, more UN? I don't like big government in Washington. I don't like this trend towards international government. He didn't go ahead and say there was a secret global elite conspiring to replace the U.S. with an international supernation. But he pointed out that to some political, as well as academic and business leaders, an international government was desirable. 
Ron Paul wasn't alone in taking the theory seriously. In state legislatures across the country, preemptive resolutions were introduced to block the potential creation of a NAFTA superhighway system. Republican Congressman Virgil Goode even introduced a bill to the House of Representatives. Looking back, the preemptive measures were unnecessary. The TTC was never built, our borders weren't open to unified North American passports, and the Amero remains a policy idea in a dusty academic book. And none of these developments seem particularly likely today. But they remain indicative of a more globalist, open America, and perhaps one day they will find their way into political debate again, to the horror of Jerome Corsi and the delight of Robert Pastor. We're far from an EU-style merger with Canada and Mexico today, but history is long, and someday, who knows? Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Nora Battelle and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.